0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Jason Sweat, who is using Ruby on Rails to build a custom electronic medical record system. Jason, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your app?
1: Sure. I'm Jason Sweat, and if you're listening to this podcast, you might know my podcast, Rails with Jason. But then aside from that, I work at a medical clinic, or I work for a medical clinic. It's a bit of an unusual job because it's a brick-and-mortar business, and I work remotely for this brick-and-mortar business. They're located in the Las Vegas area, and I'm located in Michigan, and it's myself and two other developers. I started building this system in late 2018. And as we're recording this, it is mid late 2021. So I've been working on this system for coming up on three years.
0: Nice. So were you developer one on this project? Indeed. Cool. So do you maybe want to walk us through what it was like for you to go from just an empty folder to shipping some type of MVP?
1: Sure thing. And I'll give a little bit of context. When I started building this, My client, who is now my boss, because it's now my job and not just a freelance client, um, he contacted me out of the blue, and we started working together. He told me that he wanted to build a custom EMR, electronic medical record system, for his ophthalmology practice. Um, Frankly, I thought that was crazy to build his own custom system instead of get something off the shelf, but turns out it's actually a very reasonable thing for him to have done in his particular situation. He had me build things out in a certain sequence so that we could perform this transition from his uh, systems that he'd been using before to this new system. Before he had been kind of cobbling together nine different computer systems. And the dream was to get onto this system and kill at least some of those older systems which we actually ended up doing Um, so we started working on this we broke ground on this application in like september of 2018 and then it was june or rather july 1st sorry july 1st of 2019 when we went fully live kind of to the point of no return with this new app there was there was some usage of the application prior to that um but July 1st, 2019 was when we really like started to actually have the business depend on this system. As far as technical details and stuff like that, I'm a big believer in the idea of a walking skeleton and deploying to production on day one or at least as close as possible. So the very first thing I did on this project was set up a production and staging environment on AWS. In the very beginning, Out of naivete, I used Elastic Beanstalk, and we stayed on Elastic Beanstalk for a while, migrated to an infrastructure using Ansible, which was a little more of a sophisticated infrastructure, a little more resilient, less of snowflake infrastructure. And then kind of this third generation of infrastructure that I have now, as you and I, Nick, discussed on on my podcast when you were on it, um, we're now using Kubernetes. And to be more precise, I should see it say we're currently transitioning to Kubernetes. We're not completely off of Ansible yet. So that's kind of the story of how the infrastructure portion has gone.
0: Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely get into the infrastructure side in a bit. But do you want to just paint a picture for folks out there? Since this is an internal app, right? It's not going to be publicly accessible for someone to check out. Can you just go over what an EMS record system is or an EMR? Sorry.
1: Yeah. I can't necessarily speak in general because I've never used an EMR system myself or, or had much exposure to one, but I can tell you about ours. It handles the clinical aspects. So when patients come in for an appointment, uh, the, the doctor records information about the patient in the patient's chart, You know the, the history of the patient's medical conditions and stuff like that. So there's the clinical stuff then there's all the billing stuff which obviously is a huge part of it because medical billing in the u.s is a super complicated thing and then there's just all kinds of administration stuff like we keep track of employees pto and stuff like that in the system the the goal from the beginning was really to have this one single system that could be used for absolutely everything
0: nice so when you finally ship that mvp or the product in mid-2019 did you end up replacing all nine of those other systems that you were just da- daisy-chaining together?
1: No. And to be honest, I don't even know what's being still used or not, but it's not going to be realistic re- to replace absolutely everything anytime particularly soon. Because, for example, we have these machines called OCT machines, and they do some kind of imaging. They have their own software. Um, we we get those images Uh, via just a file upload and that is not going to go away anytime soon i can imagine sometime in the future when when we're like a huge company and we have our own we build our own oct machines and, and so we have that integrated but that's like a super pie in the sky way down the road type thing so we definitely still have some of that kind of stuff but we've at least replaced like the main scheduling and clinical application that they were using before. I don't even remember what it's called, but we're completely off of that. And this is the main system that's being used now.
0: Nice. Yeah, this sounds like a, a big application to develop from scratch. I'd be really curious to hear, like, what was your motivation for choosing Rails in the end?
1: Two reasons. One, Rails is what I'm comfortable with and familiar with. And i'm not a big fan of adding risk to a project by adopting new technologies unless there's a really compelling reason and two i frankly just don't know of any other framework that is better i've dabbled in a couple others like uh, django and express for node i haven't found anything that has the the principles of rails that really serve a developer really well um, or the ecosystem, the mature ecosystem that Rails has, and also just the maturity in general of Rails as a framework and a community and all that stuff, I don't know of anything that's better.
0: Yeah, it's definitely hard to beat, especially with uh, DHH at the reins there. It's always like super engaging to watch him do keynotes and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I've watched many of his talks. I'm not much of a talk watcher, but DHH, I really respect him and like what an incredibly smart guy he is and him putting together this framework is just really impressive everything he was able to build into it and like if i tried to build my own framework there's no way i would have done nearly as good of a job as he did so it's great to have somebody like that as as the leader of that thing
0: yeah for sure so now you know whenever you're dealing with something like a medical application you know you think like you know unless it's like literally hooked up to a human being it's It's like the second most critical thing you can possibly write, like uptime is super important and like you can't just have everything just go down. I mean, you technically could, but it would be like a huge pain for, you know, everyone in the front end of the facility, right? So do you want to go over maybe some things that you've done to help mitigate some potential downtime or just making sure that the code is in good shape before you ship it?
1: Yeah, well, the answer in some ways is not much. The answer in some other ways is a lot. I'm historically a developer, not an infrastructure person. So all this has been new to me. I've had a little bit of infrastructure experience. Like I had a job back in 2015 or so where just, just by being the least inexperienced person on the project, I became responsible for all the hosting infrastructure. And so I had, it was a really tight deadline too. And so I had to, uh, study AWS under a crunch and I'd, I'd spend a lot of late nights just uh, trying to decipher aws's sometimes inscrutable documentation and i had to set up uh all that stuff but aside from that and some dabbling that i've done in my personal time i really had no experience i certainly had no experience like being responsible for a real application like the buck stops with me completely and, and it's if if anything goes wrong there's nobody but me to be in charge of fixing it and so things I'm doing, okay, so one is a lot of automated testing. Um, I have really thorough test coverage. I'm not a person who pays attention to test coverage metrics because I don't think that is very meaningful to me. The more meaningful thing is how does it feel to work with the code base? Like, are you having a lot of bugs in production? If so, you probably need more tests. Uh, are you afraid to do deployments? Without a lot of manual testing first, if so, you probably need more tests. Having said that last time I checked, I had like 96 or 97% test coverage on the application, but I haven't checked in a long time. Cause again, I don't think that's the thing to look at. Um, so a lot of automated testing. I practice what I think are good practices like continuous delivery, continuous, uh, deployment because the the more frequently you deploy the smaller the delta between each deployment you know the less stuff you deploy at a time the smaller the chances are that something is going to go wrong on that particular deployment so i'm a big fan of doing things that way on the infrastructure side uh, you probably sensed when i was discussing my kind of three generations of infrastructure going from elastic beanstalk to ansible to kubernetes i want to express my infrastructure in terms of infrastructure as code as much as i can the reason for that is because of the whole cattle not pets thing i don't want to have a a small number of servers that i have to take close care of i want to have i want to have servers that i can kill and spin up new ones freely because it's a lot easier just kill an unhealthy server and spin up a fresh healthy one than it is to try to debug a server or something like that. So that kind of stuff helps a lot. That's the main thing. Those are the main things I can think of right now. Some things I'm planning to do in the very near future as soon as I possibly can. One, finish this Kubernetes migration that I'm currently in the middle of. And two, I need a lot better monitoring on this system because right now we have nothing for monitoring. For example, if the site goes down, which happens more than ever, site goes down or even we just have some kind of brown out as opposed to total outage the way that i find i the way that i find out about that is somebody calls me and tells me and that is a failure mode i should be getting an automated alert when the site goes down or there's any kind of brown out or something like that so that's that's something we have this uh i'll, I'll just add one more thing we had this issue before where our deployments were rather unsafe because there was no kind of smoke test when the, no, no kind of automated smoke test when we're doing deployments. And Nick, you and I talked about this on my show a little bit too, but it was possible for me to deploy a broken deployment. There was nothing mechanically that would stop that from happening. So something I've added is when a deployment's happening, I will, Kubernetes allows these uh, what they call readiness checks, which I'm sure you know about, Nick. It just hits a certain URL in the application. If it receives a 200, then it proceeds with the deployment. If it receives any other status code as a response, it aborts the deployment. And that gives me so much comfort because I know a deployment's not gonna go out unless that smoke test succeeds. And some other things I wanna do in the near future is, I think it'd be really smart to do things like, for example, when we're performing a deployment, send a test email and verify that the email got received verify that our email configuration is valid for example so there's all kinds of stuff like that where like even if all our tests are passing that doesn't mean that all your server configuration is valid so there are certain checks that need to be done in production in order to ensure that validity
0: yeah for sure especially if you're you know mocking out that email api call in your test suite you're never hitting the real one so definitely that's a good point, though. Does your application also include like scheduling things out to potential patients, right? Like reminders or future follow-ups or whatever?
1: Yeah, it does scheduling. It's all internal right now. Um, that is a feature that's on the horizon for us that I've that I've been asked to take care of, which is um, sending emails to our patients uh, when they have upcoming appointments. And that's a little bit. It's starting to become a little scarier as we go from being just an internal application to something that touches patients because then you go from your audiences your internal employees obviously you have really easy access relatively to your internal employees it's and and you know there's a certain level of sophistication to your internal employees whereas when once you start doing things that touch the general public it's a whole different story
0: Yeah, I can imagine that's going to be pretty stressful because it's like you just accidentally send out, I don't know, like detailed medical records to the wrong patient, even though you, you meant to send them like a schedule or something, you know, like just some crazy database mix up.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that particular possibility. But yeah, that kind of thing's scary.
0: Yeah, hopefully that never happens. But I would imagine like, do you still need to adhere to certain like HIPAA laws and compliance things? Believe it or not, no, because of our small size. Eventually, I'm
1: sure we will. If, if we get to the size that we're trying to get to, then we will. But currently, we're small enough that not all that stuff applies.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I don't know the details behind that. Is, there, is it based on like number of patients or company size, like employees or whatever? I don't
1: know the exact metrics that it's based on. All I know is that I asked my boss, like, hey, what do we need to worry about in terms of HIPAA and stuff like that? And his answer was basically
0: nothing because we're too small. That's like the best answer for now. <laughs> right, yeah. Maybe going back to the Rails app here, on like the dev side, do you want to go over some features of Rails that you might be using in your app or just generally like what features are you building out and like how did Rails help you do those things?
1: Oh, sure. Um, there's a couple areas that are maybe the the Meteor features. One is definitely the scheduling system. There's a lot to that because it's not, it's not just like a replica of Google, Google Calendar or anything like that. It's very fitted to our peculiar needs. And then the other big area is the, the billing system, particularly the part that allows doctors to create charges. And then we send those charges to something called a clearinghouse. And then the clearinghouse interfaces with the insurance companies and the insurance companies send us their their payments but that part of the process where the doctors create the charges and then we package them up and send them off to the clearinghouse, that's a pretty complex area too. And then maybe actually the most complex area and one of the central parts of the application is the patient chart. Um, the, the patient chart for us, it lists everything that's ever happened with the, appointment, or with the patient, all their appointments, all of their, we send a lot of faxes, that's actually a big part too. Any facts that we've ever sent related to that patient, any facts we've received related to that patient. Again, just anything that's ever happened with that patient goes on the chart. So that's a big area too. So I don't know if any of that sounded like particularly interesting to dig into, but those are kind of the bigger areas.
0: Yeah. Well, we can spend the next hour talking about sending facts. Let's do that. No. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting though. Like even now.
1: It's actually pretty, the fax stuff is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. I actually would like to get into that a bit, but it's, it's very interesting to think about that. Like facts are actually still a thing going on. Like I was at my dentist's office like two months ago or whatever. And, you know, they asked me like, Hey, do you want, you know, want to print a receipt? For whatever, so I'm like, sure, right? And one of the receptionists was like, yeah, I was here uh, just for one day, like all to, all today, and they went through an entire ream of like a thousand sheets of paper. So mostly faxes, some printing receipts, but yeah, there's a lot of paperwork.
1: Yeah, it's crazy, and I guess the reason for that is that faxes are perceived correctly or incorrectly as being more dependable than other mediums.
0: Right. So yeah, maybe let's start with the patient. Not dashboard, Well, maybe it is some type of dashboard, right? But like the thing that lists all the information about them, is that like a mixture of tabular data as well as like charts and graphs, or how is that laid out?
1: It's mostly, the vast majority of it is text and file uploads. So I'll, I'll kind of paint the picture real quick of what that looks like. Maybe let's focus exclusively on the appointment aspect of it as opposed to the faxes and phone calls and all that stuff. So when you open the patient's chart, You see a table, and each row in the table is an appointment. And then inside of each appointment are these modules. So when a patient is seen, you know, everybody who's been to the doctor knows that before you actually see the doctor, you see a, a technician, and the technician might do things like take your blood pressure and stuff like that. And so all of that information is captured in one of the modules. There's a module called intake, and that's where... The technician will will record all that information. They'll ask you some, some questions about whatever. And there's like three standard modules that everybody gets for every single appointment. And then there are some other modules that are more like based on the doctor's discernment. They might say, oh, this person needs an OCT scan for whatever reason. We'll add an OCT module and then inside that, every every module is basically just a form inside of it. So they'll add that module to the appointment and then just to continue with the OCT example, there's just a big text area where the doctor can put in whatever notes they want to. um, and then a couple file upload fields, one for left eye, one for right eye. Uh, and they'll, they'll put in, I had mentioned that OCT machine earlier, they can do those scans and then upload the, the files from those OCT machine scans into those file upload fields. So, all the other modules are just more of that kind of stuff. So that's a, that's another part of the of the chart is those appointment modules. And then there's some other behaviors. Um, the doctor can sign the appointment and it might make more sense at this point to switch to the term visit. A visit and an appointment are kind of the same thing, kind of not the same thing. Obviously like appointment is just the logistic you're looking at it from a logistical scheduling viewpoint but when you say visit you're looking at it more from a clinical standpoint at the end the doctor will sign the visit and so when the doctor signs the visit it'll generate this document it's this pdf document that has all the information that was recorded if you go back and think about that intake module i mentioned where you take your blood pressure and all that stuff that'll appear in the note. The OCT scan, that'll appear in the note, including any images that were uploaded. Just anything that was put into those modules, uh, that will appear in the note. And then the last thing that happens, and this is kind of where it goes out of the chart and goes to somewhere separate, is the doctor will add charges corresponding with the modules that were, that were not really corresponding with the not modules, corresponding with any procedures that were done and stuff like that. And and there is pretty much a one-to-one relationship between the modules and the procedures that were done. But that's kind of how that works.
0: Okay. And from that, can you just like create a bill for the patient based on like if they were to request it, right? Like individual line items for each module or a thing in a module. Do you like calculate that at that level or?
1: We send our patients statements is the term we use. And yeah, the statements are built off of the charges that were generated for each appointment.
0: Okay. Now, you mentioned a couple of things there. So I would imagine there's quite a few input fields, right, where a doctor can just write ad hoc notes or whatever. And do you happen to use something like tricks for that or just a plain text area or something else? It's all
1: plain text.
0: Okay. And then in terms of like Rails features, though, do you happen to use anything like Active Job or anything else from on the Rails side? We do.
1: Um... Maybe the the most relevant thing there that's kind of interesting is for all these appointment modules, I took advantage of Rails custom generators. And that's kind of a more seldom used Rails Rails feature, but I found it super handy because these modules share certain things in common, but they're also a lot different. And so they're sufficiently different that it doesn't really make sense to have them all share the same database table or something like that. So each one of these modules is its own active record model, but again, they share enough in common that it would be repetitive for me to manually create each one of these models. So when I need to create a model, I invoke this custom generator that I've created, um, where I tell it the name of the module and and a few other things. Like for example, does the model have laterality, like left eye, right eye, Is, is that a relevant part of this module? And I invoke the module and it creates a migration formula, that creates the table. You know, all the stuff that you get when you run um, Rails, Rails uh, generate scaffold, but it's just a kind of special scaffold that I've created myself from this custom generator. So I've been super happy with that. That's given me huge leverage and saved me a lot of time. Regarding background jobs and stuff like that, there's actually not a lot of that. I use uh, Sidekick. We use Sidekick. There's not a huge amount of background jobs yet. As the volume of everything grows, that's becoming more and more called for. Like For example, there are some reports that people download, and maybe as the amount of data grows, the download starts to time out, and you can't just download it have to put that in a background job. You get sent a message with your file download sometime later instead of downloading it synchronously, synchronously. So we use it for some stuff like that, but only a small handful of jobs so far.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's super interesting too, because if you start introducing patient, like actual patients can go to the site, log in, look at their information or whatever. Yeah, suddenly your load goes from however many employees you have at that facility, right? Like 30 of them, 50 of them to potentially hundreds, right? Or thousands maybe. Yeah. Is that something where like you're keeping tabs on when that might happen if it happens or, you know, basically make the move to background jobs w- when you have to.
1: Well, there's kind of two reasons for a system to be slow. Um and one is if there's a large traffic load on the system, and the other is just if your system's really inefficient for the foreseeable future, we're going to have that latter performance problem and probably not the former performance problem too much cuz it's only 50 some employees using this. So, small traffic load, but the performance problems we have and we certainly do have some performance problems right now that need addressing ASAP. Those are the variety of just inefficient queries and like lack of caching and stuff like that. So, those will be the the next performance issues to be addressed.
0: Okay. So, I have a question. You were talking through like, you know, how a technician usually will treat you first, do blood pressure and stuff, and then the doctor will come in is there any like real-time components of this, like action cable, like broadcasting things to where the technician can input some numbers in the, their machine right there, but then the doctor can actually see the results without having to reload the page like on their side, like in their private office or whatever?
1: No, the closest thing we have to that is this autosave feature. Every f- five seconds, these forms get auto saved. And actually, there's a, there's a few different triggers that will, that will trigger an autosave. But if you like, for example, if you switch from one module to another one, at the moment that you navigate away from one module, it'll autosave that module. So we have that, but that's the closest thing we have to that real timeness. And we have encountered some concurrency challenges. Like here's something that sounds like maybe an edge case, but these things have become very common for us. Imagine, imagine, Nick, that you have the schedule open in your browser, and I also have the schedule open in my browser, same page. And then let's say that I, Nick, I cancel one of the appointments. And then you, for some reason, you try to cancel that exact same appointment right after I do, but without refreshing the page first. You're going to get a raw error because it's going to say, appointment not found. We can't cancel an appointment that doesn't exist. So there's all kinds of stuff like that where employee A and employee B have the same screen open at the same time. And then employee B performs some action on a stale version of that screen. And so they get some kind of raw error. Those are the kind of concurrency issues that we've had a lot of so far.
0: Right. So yeah, rewinding back to your app here, do you want to maybe go over some uh packages in your gem file that helped you build out certain features like you mentioned creating PDFs and like you know did you use something like devise for logins or something else Yep we use devise as far as gems
1: not a lot is coming to mind uh, we use a lot of the standard ones that that people use on um, on a lot of rails apps commonly like kaminari for um, pagination and stuff like that but nothing Nothing that's, like, super special that's, like, interesting to note. Most of it's just the the standard stuff that everybody uses.
0: Yeah, and I guess in a cool way, like, that's the beauty of Rails, right? It's like there's these really super popular gems that are really nice because they solve a specific problem, and everyone can use them even if they're building, like, 20 different types of apps. Mm-hmm. Right, like Kaminari or whatever is going to be fine for your app, my app, and, like, a million other ones.
1: Something that maybe is kind of interesting is Okay, so something that I've been kind of tweeting about recently, because I've only realized it recently, is that Rails can only help you so much. It's great for getting started, but after you reach a certain point of size or complexity, you're kind of on your own. And so you kind of have two options there. One is you can make more framework. You can, like, extend Rails, and it's, it's almost like you have your own fork of Rails in a sense, even though it's not literally a, a fork of the repo Um, and we've done that and then you can also just rely on object oriented programming and organize your code that way. And we've done that too. And both of those I think have been great. We, we use the simple form gem and I've created a form sorry, I've created a form class that inherits from the simple form form builder. And so we have our own custom, uh, builders. So, like instead of having form four or simple form four, we have our own form four tag that has different capabilities. Like, for example, I like us to have our submit buttons labeled in a certain way. And so there's a method called crud submit button. And those submit buttons will come labeled how I want them instead of the default way. That's one just really small example then I have special types of fields. Like I use the Twitter bootstrap type ahead and we can do like F dot type ahead. And that'll give us a bootstrap type ahead rather than having to like include some partial or something like that, which would maybe be more repetitive and clunky and stuff like that. So I found that super handy to have our own form builder. Um, and we can maybe talk about the, the OOP stuff that I've used, but, uh, is there anything anything that you wanted to unpack regarding the extending the framework or anything like that?
0: Yeah. So like with the form extension, did you happen to extend it in a certain way where like if you have a, a Rails validator on a field, like let's say, I don't know, a name or something like that, and you decided to put a max length of, I don't know, 128 characters on the name, do you have your form extension add something like the max length, like HTML attribute to the field without you having to explicitly put the max length one twenty eight in there?
1: No, nothing like that, I don't think. It's mostly been adding our own types of form fields that would have been repetitive to, to do otherwise.
0: Okay. Yeah, maybe we can go into some other ways that you've extended Rails to some degree, like maybe using service objects or something else.
1: Yeah. So the way, okay, so let me try to give a little context here. So at this point, most Rails developers know about the fat models, get skinny controllers thing, which is, I think a good idea. Um, but the problem with that is if you continue the policy of having one active record model per database table indefinitely, and you also practice fat models, skinny controllers, then your code is just going to grow. There's only one place for your code to accumulate and that's in the models. Cause you're not going to allow it to accumulate in the controllers and you're not going to create more models. And so they just, your code the last place that it finds to go is into your limited number of models, meaning they're going to grow. And that's obviously bad because big things are harder to understand than small things. So when your models grow, they're harder to understand. The solution that I've used for this is to use Poros, plain old Ruby objects. Um, Instead of having just, you know, Let's say I have 150 database tables in the system or whatever it is. Instead of having 150 files in app models, I have maybe like 450. Um, it's about two-thirds Poros and one-third active record uh, models. So the the Poros, most of them are pretty tiny because, um, again, small things are easier to understand than big things. And then my... When, when we're adding new features, rather than putting the code into an active record model class by default, uh, we put them into a PORO by default. And so that helps keep things organized and easily understandable.
0: Okay. Do you want to give maybe a couple of concrete examples from your code base of where you've decided to break out some of these PORO models instead of just going to an active record run?
1: Yeah, sure. A couple of decent examples are parsing and generation of files in different formats i'll i'll go back to talking about charges we we send charges off to the clearinghouse and then we receive um these these files that that represent payment data from the insurance companies so to send the files it's a super weird proprietary format that we have to send these charges in it takes a lot of massaging the data to get it into this format because, for example, let me see. Yeah, it's, it's based on this like paper form from a really long time ago that had like these individual slots to put things in. And so there's a lot of like vestigial concepts in this format that really only make sense for pen and paper. But they've ported over these concepts electronically to things that no longer make any sense. And so you have to do some real gymnastics in order to get your data the way they want it. Um, And then I I think it's pipe delimited also. But anyway, the code that generates this file is a a handful of maybe five or so poros. And then um, um, that composition of, of objects gets used by, okay, let me, let me back up a second. I, I want to make the distinction between imperative and declarative code. Imperative is basically when you're saying a sequence of steps to do and declarative is when you're specifying the desired outcome and in, in more of a static way. And so I personally find declarative code easier to understand in most cases than imperative code, but your code can't all be declarative. Because at some point, something has to happen, and so some of your code has to be uh, imperative. And so to generate this charge file, I have a small amount of imperative code, and the imperative code makes use of these declarative small objects in order to do the job that it needs to do. So I realize that that's all kind of abstract, but that's one example. And then another example I'll give real quick is this file where we receive from the insurance companies or from the bank or whatever it's again this weird proprietary format we have to we have to parse it and the parsing of that file is done by a small handful of of small i even so i remember what this is called it's it's called an edi file and so a couple objects that i have i have an object that's called edi file which just represents this file and then i have edi file chunk and edi file segment because this this file it's a pipe delimited file and it's made up of lines and it has chunks and segments to it it might not sound like it makes that much sense but it makes sense with the way the file is formatted and so the responsibilities of parsing these individual parts of the file are divided up among these different objects which are kind of responsible for different levels like there's the really fine-grained thing you know there's these segments, that's the finest grain thing. So you, you need to parse out the contents of that segment. And then the segments are kind of orchestrated based on the chunks. And then the entire file is made out of chunks. So I don't want one file that like procedurally goes through this whole thing. That would be a massive file with all these different methods. So that's why I divided it up among these objects to make the whole thing easier to understand.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you're describing creating really good abstractions basically where you're not having mixed different types of code in like the same function or whatever. Exactly, yeah. Okay, cool. Now, speaking of maybe good abstractions or maybe the Rails way is a better way to phrase that one. Do you happen to use like server render templates or like sprinkles of JavaScript or is this more of like an API backend with JS frontend?
1: No, it's very much the JavaScript sprinkles approach. My goal was to use as little JavaScript as possible because not that I particularly hate JavaScript or anything like that, in general programming, I figure like the fewer moving parts, the easier things are to understand. And JavaScript is like nothing but moving parts. So I want my my pages to be server-side rendered as much as they possibly can be. And then the areas that need JavaScript, will use JavaScript there, of course. Um, we use stimulus to organize what relatively little JavaScript we have. Having said that, even though we have the minimum amount of JavaScript necessary, it's still kind of a lot of JavaScript. So I use Stimulus, and then I also use POJO's, plain old JavaScript objects, because object-oriented programming is, in my opinion, a good paradigm, and it doesn't matter where you're applying this paradigm. And so I use it on both the front end and the back end.
0: Nice. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear what your experience is so far working with Stimulus. I know it's not like a brand new thing. It's been out for a number of years, but yeah, it gets built up over time. Do you want to give us some examples of like what stimulus controllers you have and, you know, stuff like that?
1: Yeah. Stimulus has been good. I've enjoyed working with it. Um, Examples of stimulus controllers. I'm not thinking of anything off the top of my head. I can give an example of a, of a plain old JavaScript object that I'm using. And this is like you know, I try to have things mostly composed of JavaScript objects, and then stimulus is just orchestrating those things rather than having the bulk of the code being in stimulus. Here's an example. We have this interesting component where, okay, it's like this vaguely eyeball-shaped thing. I'm, I'm gonna try not to, I was gesturing at you, but that doesn't come through on the podcast. Um, it's a circle divided into four quadrants. And then this circle has another circle in the middle that represents the pupil. And so the doctor or the technician, they will perform a certain test that basically in my understanding, uh, determines what if any blind spots, the patient has or areas of weak or blurry vision or whatever they have. And so the person using this component will click on these sections. So again, there's the four quadrants and the pupil in the middle. So five sections total. If you click on a section, it turns black. If you click that section again, it turns transparent. And so you just click and unclick to create the, uh, the configuration that you need to represent that patient's vision in that eye. And there's, of course, two instances of this component because there's two eyes, at least most people have two eyes. Um, and so
0: I wanted to be able to express... Actually, hold on. that's That was too good of a line. I have to interrupt you there. Because it's like super edge case type of scenario. Like, did you actually run into any clients that didn't have two eyes for whatever reason? So, like, you had to write different validation rules because, no, not everyone has two eyes or whatever.
1: I'm... Yeah, I'm 100% sure that we have a number of patients with less than one working eye because, you know, it's an ophthalmology clinic. People come to us when they have problems with their their eyes. But that has not come into the picture for me. So they must have a way of dealing with that. You know, maybe they just black out the entire thing. um, And that's how they deal with patients who have vision in only one eye. Um, Because I'm sure that that's a super common thing. But I wanted to express this component in a way that would be easy to understand. And so my memory, this is one of the early things I did, so I'm totally going off of memory. But my memory is that the entire component is a JavaScript object, a POJO, and it's called a CVF component. I don't know what CVF stands for. I don't don't remember, but this component is called the CVF component. And then each individual section that you can click, that is a... uh, Uh, I forget the name of the object, but it's like a component section, you might call it. But the point is that I have an object to represent each one of those. And so each one of those objects can respond to a click. And when it's clicked, it gains the property of being selected and that kind of thing. And I really enjoy that way of working because it allows me to think about each part individually. Kind of like how I was talking about the EDI file. It's too big of a thing to think about all at once. So if it can be divided up into these parts, it's so much easier. So again, I'm a fan of OOP, not only on the back end, but the front end as well.
0: Nice. Yeah. I mean, trying to visualize that, is it basically just like a checkbox that's a graphical on or off state, and then you make like an AJAX call to the back end to save whatever it is or no?
1: Yeah. It's like, um, it's, it's expressed binarily. So each of those five sections, again, the four quadrants and the pupil each one of those is, of course, either on or off. And then that gets serialized. And the, the whole thing, you know, the, the set of two components for the two eyes, that all gets serialized and it gets saved into like a, um, I think it's like a PostgreSQL hash. So I'm basically just sending along that serialized JavaScript hash to the server side. Then it gets, I think it gets, uh, converted from javascript to ruby and then lastly it gets saved into postgresql in in a normalized way i'm I'm not just like i don't think i'm just saving like a straight string or something like that because there's benefits to actually having it as a postgresql hash and then when that when that component gets reloaded when somebody visits that page again that value just gets grabbed out of the database and then applied and the thing that i um just to pat myself on the back for another one of my good decisions rather than like when somebody clicks a section rather than having it just update that one thing when somebody clicks a session section that data gets updated in that entire serialized representation of of what all gets saved and the entire thing gets refreshed so it's it's like an immutable component where you're not changing the little parts and then like stitching it all together at the end or something like that. You're changing the data and then the entire thing is refreshed every time any of the data gets changed.
0: Nice. Yeah, it sounds like a, a good way to approach that one. Now, when you were implementing that and now like current day, what Hotwire Turbo being, I don't know if it's like almost ready to be like one owed, but I think they just released like RC1 version of whatever. Like, have you thought about maybe ways to incorporate using Turbo into your system here in any shape or form or no?
1: I have thought about it, but this is an area where I am completely ignorant in my budgeting of things to think about and learn about and all that stuff. I've kind of made a conscious decision that I'm not going to learn anything about that particular thing anytime super soon. Although it's on my list of things to learn about uh, at some point, but not right now.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, it's like Let's see, medical service pre 1.0 release. Like hmm, pros and cons don't look so good right now. Maybe a couple of years.
1: Yeah, yeah, that doesn't scare me so much, to be honest. Um, to me, it's more a matter of priorities. Like right now, our site reliability is the thing that needs the most attention because of course, everything else is moot. If our site goes down once a month, that's just not acceptable. So we need to invest a lot more attention into that before anything like that.
0: Right, and uh, yeah, before we move on to talking about the infrastructure and how that's all, de- all deployed, do you wanna just go over like maybe the rest of your tech stack? Cause you did mention that you are using Postgres. Do you use like the usual suspects here? Like you're using Redis as a backend with Sidekick and maybe Nginx or anything else?
1: Exactly all that stuff. I'm trying to think of what else. It's like super standard, which is kind of, you know, kind of intentional. I didn't want to deviate. We're using uh, Elasticsearch. That's one thing we're using. I'm trying to think of anything else. It's really just a very standard Rails app. Um, So yeah, that's about all there is to it.
0: Okay. And for the Elasticsearch stuff, is that just to do like full text search on a couple different field types?
1: Yeah. And that's another migration that we're in the middle of. Prior to Elasticsearch, we just had custom search code. And over time, it's like, okay, we add custom search mode, custom search code to another model, then another model. At some point, it makes less sense to do all this custom stuff and to just treat it all one way and add Elasticsearch. So we did that for one of our search fields, but it made the test suite flaky. And so I need to figure out why the test suite is flaky because of that before I want to add it to more stuff.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So usually, like the goal of me as being a part of this podcast, I'm not here like grill really you on your tech choices. But sometimes it's interesting to bring up like certain questions because it's like, did you go down the route of using like Postgres' full text search and then ran into limitations? Like you just didn't want to keep adding uh, those specific methods to your models, like because you know Postgres has a pretty good full text search. I was curious if you just ran into limitations where Elasticsearch was a better fit.
1: Well, we need search on different models in different ways. Some things need to be fuzzily searched. Some things don't. Um, Some things we want to search them on like two specific attributes. Some we want to search them on like eight different attributes. And maybe PostgreSQL can handle that all just fine. But this is a lot of like Ruby code that was being written before the database even came into the picture. PostgreSQL is doing a great job of what we're using it for. It just doesn't enter the picture until like pretty far downstream. Um, But this is another thing that i'll admit that i'm very ignorant about uh, and it wasn't a very informed decision to pick elasticsearch it was like okay we need more sophisticated search what are the options i hear a lot of people use elasticsearch i guess i'll use that
0: okay yeah that makes a little sense i mean it's one of those industry standard tools like you can probably not go to run ever picking it for full-text search and whatever else it does that- like faceted navigation and things. So yeah, maybe now let's uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about the infrastructure setup. So you mentioned you are using AWS. Do you wanna start us off with uh, what led you down that path?
1: Hmm. What led me down that path? Well, the obvious answer is that's what my boss wanted to use. And so I did that. The way that my boss found me was I had written an article on how to deploy Rails to AWS. And he was trying to follow it himself and, and do the coding. He's a doctor, but he was trying to teach himself coding. And in the course of following my tutorial, he decided to just reach out to me and have me help him with that. And so that's where that originated. There was no like conscious choice on my part to use AWS. I, I wrote a blog post on AWS. And so that won me this gig where I was using AWS.
0: Right. So basically, when the doc says AWS, it's AWS. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, when it comes to the AWS setup, do you want to go over maybe some AWS services that you're using? Because there's so many of them, as I'm sure you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And again, the standard stuff, um, EC2 for web instances, the uh, application load balancer for our load balancer, RDS for the database, um, whatever the service for Redis is i don't even remember because i set that up once and haven't touched it since
0: elastic cache
1: yeah um i'm trying to think of what else is like super standard but those are the main ones that we're using
0: okay yeah there's probably the Elasticsearch one i don't know what their managed version of that but are you using that one yep and then happen to be using s3 for like uploads oh yeah that? yep okay and then like the main event here kubernetes so you mentioned ec 2 instances That makes me think you're probably using not Fargate, right? So like you're managing your own nodes through, I guess, EKS then, right?
1: EKS, yeah, Elastic Kubernetes Service.
0: Nice. So yeah, let's start unpacking that one. Uh, I guess to start with, like how many nodes do you run on the cluster? And is it mainly like stateless applications? Like, is it just the Rails app and the Sidekick workers? But then your database and Elasticsearch are all on external services outside the cluster, right? Correct, correct.
1: Yeah, so prior to Kubernetes, we had three EC2 instances. And then when we migrated to Kubernetes, I said, okay, three has been working fine so far, we'll use three again. And I thought, you know, I'm new to all this stuff. And so I thought, okay, three three instances, three nodes, I guess that's how I'll do it. And then for whatever reason, I decided to bump it up from three nodes to nine nodes. So three nodes for each of my, uh, one ec2 instances For all I know that's a really dumb way to go I don't, you know I don't have any frame of reference but it has worked out fine so far so obviously I'll continue to educate myself and, and run into problems and have to fix those problems and stuff like that but that's the way it is now.
0: Right. Isn't that so fun though, being the person, you know, who gets called if things go down, but also like on the spot, learning this stuff as you go, even something as complicated as Kubernetes, even if something as important as like deploying a medical application, but here you are sole developer. Well, you mentioned there are other developers in the team now, but like, I don't know, is everyone working on the infrastructure stuff or is it just you? Just me. Right. So how has that experience been? (laughs) Like, I'm sure it's been fun.
1: Yeah, it's been fun. It's been interesting. You know, I'm the kind of person who enjoys that kind of stuff. I've always enjoyed like messing around with Linux and stuff like that. Um, So this is like a good fit for my interests and all that stuff. So it's good that way. And it can be fun in a perverse sort of way to like read this terrible documentation and have to try to figure out how to get something actually working because it's like a puzzle that you have to solve. I kind of wish it wasn't a puzzle that I had to solve, but it is a puzzle that I have to solve. Uh, and and by that, I mean the, the puzzle of figuring out how to do things with insufficient documentation. So that part has been fun. And then as everybody knows, who's been in this position, it can be nerve wracking to be responsible for such a thing. You know, when there's an, when there's an incident that's, that's, well, there's a special kind of feeling that you feel during an instant incident, you know, on one hand, it's like kind of exhilarating. And you're, you're never more focused than when you're responding to an incident, you know, anything else that you might be thinking about, you're, nobody's doing any kind of daydreaming or anything like that. During an incident, you're 100% focused on resolving the incident. So that's, that's kind of the positive part to that. And then the obvious negative is like, everybody's breathing down your neck when you're, when you're, when the site's down, um, getting texting like, Hey, any idea when it'll be back up and stuff like that? It's like, I don't know, but thanks for
0: telling me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, right. Yeah, and then, you know, there's a uh, maybe like 5% of my brain's processing power is taken up at all times by just knowing that the site could go down at any hour of any day.
0: Yeah, it's a super interesting one because like I'm on the fence right now about maybe taking a full-time position somewhere. And like one of the things would be, technically being on call like 24 seven, but only for emergencies, right? But it's like, yeah, there's a big difference in how you might lead your life knowing like, well, I'm gonna go out and do something for like four hours. But it's like, does that mean I need to bring my laptop like just in case? Like, do you think about those things or no?
1: I do. Yeah, like we're going on a vacation in a little bit and we have to, it really compromises our vacation because I can never be very far from my computer. No like long nature hikes or anything like that the site only really needs to be functioning on weekdays or to be more precise outages are only really a serious problem on weekdays and so we have to do all of our traveling on the weekends so we're driving from michigan to maine and so we're gonna leave here on like a saturday morning then we have to be done traveling by sunday night and then we'll be in one place for a week and then we'll drive to to new york state for another week and then driving back on the final weekend. And I can't really, I also can't really entirely stop working for certain reasons. So yeah, it's a very compromised vacation and there's always that possibility that, I'm, that there's going to be an incident.
0: Right. And when you say like, you just can't stop working, that's more just like internally, like mentally, that's how you are as a person, right? Like it's very hard to turn the light switch off. No,
1: like logistically, I can't stop working because we have two other programmers and I'm the only person who can provide them with their work. And so I'll I'll need to spend at least, I don't know how much time per day, maybe uh, two or three or four hours each day uh, doing things like reviewing PRs and preparing JIRA tickets and stuff like that in order to keep them going.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so now it's like, I guess your your point of view, it's like, how do I automate myself out of the job? Like, or at least automate yourself having have to be on call. So that's why you said like the importance is around like being like a, the reliability of the infrastructure, right? Like monitoring and whatnot. I'm curious though, uh, before we get into that, what was your process behind switching from the Ansible setup on a couple of EC2 instances to transitioning to Kubernetes? Like what, what made you go over that hurdle or even go down that rabbit hole?
1: That is a fantastic question. So the first question is, can I even do this? What's the feasibility of me personally setting up this Kubernetes infrastructure? Because like, I've never done this before. I don't know how to do this. Um, And so I went on my own personal AWS account, so somewhere that's isolated where I'm not going to interfere with our real production infrastructure. And I tried to get a Kubernetes hello world up and running. And so I did that. And that wasn't particularly easy, but I was able to do it. And then I kind of did the same thing on our real infrastructure. I I decided to see, can I get our real app at least standing up on a Kubernetes-based infrastructure? And so I was able to do that. And kind of my, my approach, you know, there's this Kent Beck quote for programming, make it work, then make it right, then make it fast. And so I was taking an approach of make it work, then make it right, and maybe the make it fast part, applies or doesn't, but I, I I couldn't afford to do everything the most correct possible way because it was so time-consuming even to get anything to work at all. And so I took the approach of, okay, let me get this working somehow. And then once it's working, then I can step back and say, okay, I have this like duplicated configuration. Let me clean this up, blah, blah, blah. But the big risky thing, of course, was was actually getting people onto this new kubernetes infrastructure having real production traffic routed to kubernetes and so the way i wanted to do that was to have things running in parallel for a period of time before we completely switched over and so the way we did that was we took our production domain and pointed that at the kubernetes easy two instances but everything on the back end the cron jobs and the background jobs and that stuff that was all still Ansible. Um, And then we still had our Ansible web instances at the ready. And I even had a um, backup domain. It's called backup.mydomain.com. So that, if anything went horribly wrong with the Kubernetes infrastructure, we could tell everybody, okay, something went wrong. Just switch to backup.blah, blah, blah. blah, and, And you can use it that way. So we always had that fallback in case anything went horribly wrong. Thankfully, we have not had to use that backup. I can't say that we won't ever have to use that backup, but we haven't so far. And like I said, we're, we're still in the middle of this This Kubernetes migration is still in progress as we speak. So my next steps will be to one at a time, move over like uh, the cron jobs and the background jobs. And our S3 needs to get switched from, we did a domain switch as part of this, so It needs to get switched from one domain to the other. So I'm gonna do those one at a time so that eventually we're fully on the Kubernetes infrastructure. Then after we're fully on the Kubernetes infrastructure for a while, then I'll take away the old infrastructure.
0: Yeah, so what you said, like, internally, I'm just like, yep, whoa, this guy is like me, but in a different state. Like, your workflow of doing this is like exactly how I went about it as well, right? And I love that quote around just like, make it work, then make it right, because like, how are you going to make it right when you have never even made it work? You know, it's like you have to, like, transition from something to something better. Like, you can't just start with something better because you have no idea what what you're even doing, right? Not you specifically, but it's just like when you're learning something new. So that was cool to see all that go up. And yeah, huge, huge, huge fan of the idea of keeping the backup up and you just point DNS to it because the risk factor goes so much lower, right? Because you just have the easy out to just point it to the old one and you're back in business in whatever, a minute, right? Or whenever DNS updates. So that's awesome to hear. As you were setting up this cluster, you know, earlier, earlier in this call, you mentioned uh, infrastructure as code. So do you have this cluster provisioning set up in something like Terraform or do you use like EKS-CTL or some other tool? I
1: use EKS-CTL, but very, very little of the infrastructure is expressed as code right now. I have my, I have my deployment configuration file I have my ingress configuration file and one other one that I'm not recalling but no it's it's at a very very uh infant stage of maturity right now.
0: Okay. Is the other one like the service.yaml?
1: That may be it.
0: Okay. And that's curious too like when you mention all these different Kubernetes manifest files, these YAML files for deployment, service, ingress, et cetera, do you have raw YAML files or did you end up using some templating tool like customize or Helm or something else? I'm using Helm.
1: As I mentioned on my podcast, when you were the guest, I'm using Helm, but I don't really understand Helm. And so with that one, I'm at the phase of like, okay, what even is this thing? If I type this command and hit enter, like does something happen? Like that kind of stuff. You know, some of this involves just like blindly following tutorials and seeing like, okay, if I follow this recipe to the letter, do I get the same result? I might not understand why the recipe worked, but at least the recipe worked. That's the first step. Then go back and actually try to understand what happened. And then once again, finally make it it right at the last step. But with Helm, I'm at that very first stage where I don't even understand it yet and if anybody's listening and they think man it sounds really dangerous just to like use all these things and you don't even know what's happening uh i i wouldn't argue with you on that one
0: so yeah on the flip side though right you can totally get real world work done without having to be like this you don't need a phd in kubernetes to get something up and running basically like basically learn as you go you have good backup plans good like uh, contingency plans and you can make it work
1: yeah and it's really just not an option to understand hundred percent of everything before you do anything. And it's a calculated risk. So like you have two options. Okay. So let's take the helm thing. It's like one option is I can study helm really hard until I like fully understand it before I feel comfortable using it. And that's one option and it has certain costs. And then the other option is to get to the point where I can at least use it if I don't fully understand it, but something works and that's an option with certain costs in the form of risk like if if something goes wrong in production that involves helm somehow i might not be able to recover from it very quickly due to my lack of understanding but i'm aware of that risk and i'm taking on that risk um, consciously and so between those two paths i consider the cost of that risk to be a preferable cost to other cost of just like analysis paralysis where I'd have to study for a super long time before I do anything. Cause, and the big reason why I make decisions in that way is because when you're early, it would be unwise to spend a bunch of time studying all these different things. Cause you don't even know for sure what you're gonna end up using. It could be the case that I like become a really like well-versed Helm user. And then at the end of that, I step back and say, okay, I know all about Helm, wait a second. I'm not actually going to use Helm very much. And so then I've like burned a huge amount of time. And am I going to multiply that waste of time across all these different technologies I could possibly use? That just wouldn't be practical.
0: True. Yeah. And I mean, there's no end to that, right? It's like you do that and suddenly it's like, yeah, information paralysis, six months down the line and you haven't shipped anything because you're just learning these things continuously. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what the Helm thing too, specifically, right? It's like it's not like if you're going to try to learn it, you don't need to apply these things directly to your production cluster. It's like you can have a local cluster on your dev box and run Helm commands there and like get a feel for it without it affecting prod, which I'm sure, you, I don't know, have you been doing that or no?
1: Well, I did some tests with Helm before we had the infrastructure completely switched over. And it was the kind of thing where like, um, I used Helm to set something up a single time and it's not like something that I'm touching on an ongoing basis So yeah, the only time I was using it was on infrastructure that wasn't live. And I did that once like in the very beginning and then another one during like a middle of the night maintenance window.
0: Okay. So I know for me personally, I'm also not a Helm like super expert. I feel like maybe, and I'm not trying to like brag or whatever, maybe a notch or two ahead of where you are because I've gone a little bit further down that hole. But one of the things that led me to using Helm in the first place was like wanting to One, abstract out the same types of deployments and service and ingress files for multiple services with a couple of config values, so a really great way to dry out duplication. But two, it was like, okay, I want to run my containers or pods in different environments, like a staging environment and a production environment. That ended up being not the most straightforward thing with regular raw Kubernetes YAML files if you're not templating them out. So I'm curious, how do you deal with different environments? Or do you just have like prod running in one cluster and that's it?
1: I mentioned the idea before of blindly following a tutorial, and, and maybe it works even if you don't understand why. This was a case of that. I, there's this guy, I had him on my podcast, Costas Kapalonis, a fellow countryman of yours. He's a Greek guy, also. Ooh, like him already. Yeah. Um, but he had this, he has a lot of really good Kubernetes related posts um, and some really good testing related posts, too, by the way. Um, but he had like how to set up a staging and production environment using Helm. And so I followed that and that's how I have my staging and production. It's one cluster and then just two different namespaces on that same cluster.
0: Right, yeah, it's the same route I went because Helm is really cool in that regard. Like you just put the namespace flag when you run your Helm command and suddenly it's staging or prod, or if you want to go all out and maybe we can get into this, right? Like uh, I just set up the idea of where if you open a pull request, it will go and spin up that application up in the cluster what with uh, just a, a random subdomain, like the pull request, like SHA-ID with a service name, so you can get a preview of that one. And using Helm, that really wasn't that bad. It was like like less than 10 lines of shell scripting in Helm. I'd be curious, what is your deploy process looking like now? You know, you mentioned different namespaces and stuff, but like, can you walk us through maybe what it's like to go from, okay, hacking on this feature in development and actually getting it up and running in prod?
1: Yeah, currently it's rough and it's partly manual. So this is actually, this is like really terrible the way it is now. So Let's say that I have a feature that I believe is complete on the master branch, the test suite has passed and all that stuff. First, I'll deploy to the Ansible infrastructure because currently Ansible is the only place where my migrations can run. So that has to be done first for that reason. Usually while the feature is deploying, I'll go and perform a Docker build. I, I have a tiny shell script that I wrote that will perform a build and then push my image to Amazon ECR, Elastic Container Registry. And then I'll, uh, that, that shell script, I, I pass a version number to it. So it gives a new version number to my image. And then I go and manually update my deployment file with that new version number, and then I apply that new deployment and, and that's the end of that. So several manual steps. One of the items on my list before this migration can be considered complete, of course, is making that deployment process fully automated.
0: Okay, so but these are like literal commands that you run, like run command one, two, three, four, at some point, like on your dev box, I guess, or some like jump box or somewhere else? Exactly, on my dev box. Right, yeah, I try not to throw tips, but like Helm, for sure, I think will help you out there because you can variableize something like the tag of that image so that you can just run a Helm command clap in that tag. And then it'll like, instead of you having to go to the template and replacing something, it'll like just pop that variable in. Basically like an ERB template, but YAML.
1: Yeah, well, please throw me some tips because I'm (laughs) I'm a total noob. Yeah, that will be great because obviously like having a deployment process that's not fully automated, you're just asking for troubles. At the worst, it's inconvenient. Or at the best, it's inconvenient. And at the worst, it can lead to disasters.
0: Yeah, especially when if your you know, back is against the fence, something is wrong on the site or whatever, like the last thing you wanna do is like, oh God, I have to run like these six commands in the perfect order and wait and make sure it works. Mm-hmm.
1: And when you're stressed and feeling the pressure of the moment, that's when you're gonna make mistakes and all that.
0: Absolutely. So on the topic of the play process though, you know maybe these are manual steps, maybe they're automated. Uh, how do you deal with secret management? Because I haven't perfected this yet in my cluster, but I'd be curious to see what you do.
1: Haven't perfected it myself either. I just use Kubernetes secrets. When I was transferring over my environment variables, I did them one by one. I, I did the echo dash in, and then the secret value. Pipe it through base64, so I can paste it into my secret file, then apply the secret file. And that's how I did that.
0: Okay, cool. And then, you know, on the CI side of things, do you have things set up to where if your other developers or you push anything up to like a any type of branch, does the whole test suite and everything get run? And only one test pass, then you go in and run your manual steps like afterwards, or
1: Right. Every time we push a branch, the tests automatically run on CircleCI. And then before I perform a deployment, I just manually check that the tests have passed and I perform the deployment. I currently have no desire to link the passage of tests with deployments because I want to control when the deployments happen. Because um, some of the, we do use feature flags, but despite that, um, I want to be in control of when certain things go out because certain certain features are more risky than others. And when we have a particularly risky deployment, I want to be able to decide when that happens.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Love the idea of future flags as well. Do you happen to use a specific gem or do you just have if conditions or whatever? We just
1: have ifs and environment variables.
0: Right. I'm curious, what is your... Uh, ways of dealing with that. Like, do you introduce something as a new feature and then let it ride for a bit, you know, after it's been enabled? And then when you're happy with it, do you just remove those if conditions then? And then, then it's just part of the application? Exactly, yep. Nice. And then on topics of like just making your code safe, right? Uh, do you do code reviews as well or no? Like if a dev pushes up a PR?
1: Yeah, exactly. We just use GitHub pull requests. And whenever, whenever we have a feature, there's kind of one pull request per... JIRA ticket, and then I'll take a look at at the code and there'll be a number of rounds, you know, zero or more rounds of feedback and stuff like that. We keep our features really small, at least try to keep them as small as I can. The initial work is usually like, I I try not to make the tickets so that they will be more than like a day's worth of work. Ideally, it's just a few hours worth of work. So the cycle time for each thing, from the, the the commencement of work to when it's deployed in production is as short of a time as possible. Um, so that's how that part works. Okay.
0: And it's always interesting to me talking to developers who are working on like a small team. So do you guys have like communication between each other around how to deal with database migrations in such a way that things aren't going to go, go crazy on Kubernetes in, in the cluster because you have like, you know, version A running and version B running while they're doing a rolling update for like maybe five minutes or something like that. Like, do you be really, are you really careful with your database migrations to only do operations that won't lock tables or just have conflicts?
1: Now I am because we had some issues around that. There was a big rename that we did, and this was kind of a perfect storm due to uh, lack of foresight on my part. So we have these two infrastructures running, the Ansible one and the Kubernetes one. So these two separate deployments. Um, and we renamed some database tables. And I performed a deployment. And there was a, a period of time where there was a mismatch. And the code didn't match the database. And so we had some errors and stuff like that. So that was a little rough. And I don't want that to happen again, of course. And so the I think part of the moral of that story is like, don't do big database table renames during this time period where we have these two different infrastructures at the same time. Like that was probably just a bad idea, but also our migration strategy will probably have to be a little bit more sophisticated in the future. Like one thing we've done is instead of putting the migration in an actual migration, like if it's a migration, okay. So if it's a migration that just like adds a table or something like that, then that's fine. But if it's a migration that changes a database table name or, um, that's a bad example. If, if it migrates some data or something like that, like uh, changes some actual data, we had a case where we put that in a rake task so that the deployment and the application of that change could be done at separate times. In the future, if we have like a database table rename, that'll have to be done in a more careful way. Like for example, making it so the code can function properly independently of whether the rename has happened yet or not. I'm not sure how exactly that would go, but that seems like a smarter way to do it than than depending on a match between the code and the current version of the database. I need to do more research and all that stuff on that part. But yeah, anything like that in the future is going to have to be done with more care.
0: Right. Yeah, I'll link to a blog post in the show notes. I can't think of it offhand, but it was a great one. And it was specific to Rails too. Like how to do... Uh, I don't know, renaming a column, right? It's like such a basic thing, but also quite involved at scale with multiple versions. And it was like 17 steps to victory, but it broke it down like really, really well.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of thing where like when you're at a certain stage, you don't have to think about that. But when you get bigger and busier and all that, that's stuff you have to think about.
0: Yeah, for sure. So when it came to like getting your developers on board with being able to do these migrations and stuff like that, did you like sit down with them and chat about ways to, you know, do this type of stuff? Because- It's another interesting problem, right? Like if you're just a developer sitting on your dev box and you know nothing about deploying, nothing about production, like it's so easy to write code in certain ways that just don't work very well in production uh, in many different examples. Like did you end up talking to your devs about this stuff or no?
1: No, because basically the most recent migration that we had like that was the one where things went wrong and we haven't had another migration yet where it's the kind that will call for that higher level of care and attention and all that stuff. So we might need to have, we'll probably need to have a conversation like that when the time comes, but that hasn't happened yet.
0: Okay. Now, you've mentioned Jira a couple times here, too. Like, do you have your developers writing their own Jira tickets out before they start writing code, or do they just go straight into code after reading a ticket that you've written?
1: Uh, the vast majority of the time is one that I've created. So I'll get requirements in a certain format for my boss. And then I'll translate that to something more technical. And those are the JIRA tickets that the other two developers work off of.
0: Okay, and do you find, and I, I this is like a loaded question because it's gonna be like, of course you do because you're doing it. But do you find that to be like a really valuable use of time? Like, you know, I've worked with some contractors before as a contractor working for like a boss, let's say, where they're not into like writing Jira tickets or any formal write ups of what to do first, because it's like, oh, you know, it's time spent instead of writing code. But in my opinion, like writing those specs out first to get a clear understanding seems to be like a a really good investment. Do you find that to be the same way?
1: Well, as the old saying goes, weeks of programming can save hours of planning.
0: (laughs) Exactly, yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so obviously like, that's good. And so, okay, so when I'm on the other side of it, when people are giving me tickets and I'm doing the work, I like to know what's expected. Um, and how are you supposed to know what you're supposed to do if you don't have, and if you don't have it written down somewhere. So for all of our tickets, there's a numbered list of acceptance criteria and the acceptance criteria are expressed in terms of steps that you can perform. And then the, the result you should see at the end of carrying out those steps. So when I visit such and such page and fill out these fields and hit submit, then on the next page uh, this certain thing is, is present on that page. So each acceptance criterion is, is in a format like that. And if you can go down the list and everything is satisfied, then that ticket's done. And if not, then it's not done and independent of the code review and stuff like that. But I want it to be super black and white. Is this done? Is this not done?
0: Right. Also curious on a related note, like how often do you actually deploy to production or cut releases out?
1: It used to be multiple times a day. Now I only deploy in the morning before business hours because we've you know we've had these issues with things being out of sync with these two uh, two infrastructures running side by side, and so I avoid on hours. I'm, I'm avoiding on hours deployments while we have these two parallel parallel infrastructures. After we're fully on Kubernetes. I expect to go back to deploying multiple times a day.
0: Okay. Yeah, maybe on on that topic, we can talk about, uh, well, hopefully things won't go wrong when that happens, but like, you know, just disasters in general, like, because it's going to lead into like monitoring the things you have planned in that regard. But before we get there, do you want to just talk, like how do you deal with database backups or backing up user files? I know you mentioned RDS, so maybe snapshots, but maybe something else. Yeah,
1: just RDS snapshots. And then uh, I don't even know what we're doing on the S3 side, to be honest. That's, That's a good prompt for me to go and, look into what's going on with that i assume there's some kind of built-in built-in backup for that but we've have had to use the rds snapshots and like restore from a snapshot before um so luckily that that setup has been tested although not tested very recently but yeah we're just using the rds snapshots
0: okay have you done any dry runs where you routinely go and grab a snapshot and just see if you can not like actually go and put it into production as like loading that backup, but like maybe on a different cluster or on a dev box or whatever, just to make sure that your restore process works. Not
1: recently. One of the things that I really want to be able to do is, well, two things. I want to be able to run a single command and have our production data replicated to staging. And then two, to be able to run a single command and have the RDS snapshot replicated to either staging or production. I think that would be really nice.
0: Yeah, for sure. And in a similar vein, like what about getting a production replica in dev, but without leaking like customer information or patient data? Do you have any plans on how to do that? Or do you like generate fake data? Or like, how does that work?
1: I have plans to do that, but not for how to do that, because I don't know how we're going to do that. Evil Martians has this tool that they've created that helps with something like that. Um, and I think the idea with errors might be more like a size issue. Like it's impractical to download the entire production database if it's really big. So that's something I wanna do. It's it's yet another thing on the list, but currently I just download everything.
0: Right. Yeah, I think there's like two main options, right? It's like you just download the whole data, possibly do some reduction stuff in the process, like getting rid of any super like crazy little patient data, like social security numbers and stuff. And then like the other option is like using like the Faker gem to generate fake data that's like real enough, like you know it's gonna generate a real fake name, real fake email, et cetera. I'm also torn on what is the best way to do that. I guess it depends on what we're working on, but
1: yeah, and something that I find super useful occasionally is downloading production data so I can have my local environment be just like production with the exception being that it's my local environment so I can reproduce a bug on my local machine, that kind of thing because otherwise it can be kind of tricky to reproduce things you don't have the visibility that you would get if you were working in your local environment
0: yeah it seems like it should be a solved problem but it's not because it's like even if you clone down the whole prod data but let's just say you have a lot of it and you want to like minimize like you know 400 gigs down to like maybe two gigs of data just so you can screw around in dev suddenly it's like that's not really production anymore because if you're trying to debug an error that happened in one of the rows that got purged then you can't do anything about that you know
1: yeah yeah honestly there's a lot of things in development that seem like they should be solved problems but aren't it's pretty interesting how many things are just like at a at a really immature state when you really think about it
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, on the topic of just like monitoring and alerting and alarms and error reporting and all that fun stuff, uh, do you have any of that set up now? I mean, you mentioned kind of not so much, but like what's on the horizon or maybe some of that stuff you've done?
1: Yeah. No, in the past, I had CloudWatch set up. And frankly, that was a nightmare to set up CloudWatch. It was super hard to do it. And I I only set it up for disk-based monitoring because I had an incident once where a disk filled up and it caused an outage. But that, for reasons... I don't know. Stopped working, and anyway, I'm not gonna go down that route. When I when I fix it, I I don't think I'm gonna use some more like comprehensive tool. Like I don't even know if like Datadog or Honeycomb does that kind of monitoring or what. But when it when I you know first thing finish this Kubernetes migration. Second thing, there's are certain areas of our site that are just super slow. So in the terms of like. I call it sharpening the saw where we do things that are not urgent, but they are important. My sharpening the saw to do list is like finish the Kubernetes migration, address some performance issues that our site has that really desperately need to be addressed. And then I have a, a to do list on the infrastructure side, which includes monitoring. Um, it includes those production tests that I mentioned, like for example, sending an email from the system. I don't remember what, oh, something to do with uh, cron jobs to make sure that's still functioning. Um, Stuff like that so we can roll back deployments if they are not successful. And then a few other things. So that's that's kind of my my sequence. So I'm totally ignorant when it comes to monitoring right now. And I'm just going to do that learning all at once when I reach that step.
0: Right. Yeah, it seems to follow suit to what you've been doing so far, but it's been working out very well. Like when it's a problem, then solve it. And now, like, you're at that point where maybe you want to get on board with monitoring. So now's the time to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, on the topic of like just monitoring, maybe at a super basic level, like, did you go and set resource limits for your containers running on your pods? So, like, amount of memory and CPU?
1: No. Did you and I talk about resource limits before?
0: I don't think we did. Yeah,
1: I don't think so either. But this has come up for me recently because this is a case where Kubernetes saved us from what I believe would have been an outage. We had these, I might have at least mentioned this incident because we had these uh, instances or or rather pods that kept running out of memory. They kept just filling up their RAM. And so these instances would get, sorry, these pods would get killed and then new pods would get spawned and this just kept happening over and over and so I I ended up bumping up the EC2 instance size and that solved the problem but as I was doing research into like what should I do about this how to prevent it in the future I came across resource limiting and I heard that it's a good idea to set resource limits but that's one of the things that I haven't reached yet in all my learning
0: Okay. Yeah. They're quite helpful for like, just so Kubernetes can know like, okay, cool. I'm dealing with an EC2 instance with eight gigs of RAM and whatever, eight CPU cores, right? With the resource limits on there, it'll know like, okay, this thing requires one gig of memory. So I can like technically probably fit, I don't know, seven of them because you don't want to max it out completely, but yeah. Yeah. So it's basically utilizing your cluster, I guess you can say. And also like you say too, like saving yourself from just crazy things happening.
1: Yep. Yep. So that'll be a nice thing. Don't have that yet.
0: Okay. And like also on the topic of like monitoring, I know the answer is probably no, but just curious, like, do you have any external things monitoring, like maybe public aspect of the site, like an external tool outside the cluster that just makes sure you get like a status code 200?
1: No, I haven't even heard of that concept, but that seems like a smart thing to do. So, and the idea there is that it's like independent of your infrastructure. So even if AWS itself goes down, for example, you still have your monitoring up. Is that the idea?
0: Yeah, just like, can the public internet reach this thing that's totally outside of your your network?
1: Yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Yeah, Uptime Robots, a free one. They're not like a sponsor or anything. I just happen to use them. But they'll ping your site like every five minutes looking for a specific status code. And you can put, you know, a specific URL, you know, like slash up or healthy or whatever you like.
1: Okay. Yeah, definitely seems like a good idea.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building all this out?
1: Oh, man. So on one hand... Again, I'm a total noob with a lot of this stuff, so uh, no tips on a lot of it. And then on the other hand, I would have so many tips. The one thing I said before about like how I've approached this migration with having things in parallel, even though having these things in parallel comes with problems, obviously, I think it's a smart approach to have the two in parallel so that you're not completely dependent on this new untested thing, because that's just really dangerous. So that's one thing. Some of these like mindset issues, like the, the whole make it work and then make it right thing. Like if you have the idea that you need to be really confident with everything before you get something started, then you're never going to achieve anything. You're going to have analysis paralysis. So that's another really big thing. It's super helpful to develop good skills around deciphering documentation. So one tip that I've shared is like, if you have a paragraph, let's say you read a paragraph and you don't understand it. For me, the the old me would read a paragraph and I'd say, I don't understand this paragraph. I don't understand this page. But now I don't say that anymore. I don't say, I don't understand this page. I'd say, okay, well, I don't understand this page. What about the first sentence? Do I understand the first sentence? No? Okay. Well, what about the first word of the first sentence? Do I understand that? It says the, okay, I understand that. And then i search for like, okay, what's the first word that I don't understand? Okay, it says cluster. What's a cluster? I don't know what that is. And so then I'll go and Google like Kubernetes cluster. And then sometimes it's recursive, you know, maybe inside of the the Kubernetes cluster documentation, I find some other terms that I don't understand. I'll need to go research those. But eventually my recursion reaches its base case and I'll, I'll be done with that particular term. And I say, okay, I understand that now reread it with this higher level of understanding. And then I'll just do as many passes as necessary. Maybe I won't need to understand the entire page or the entire paragraph, but once I've done just barely enough research, I'll say, okay, I've, I understand enough that I get the gist of this thing and I can do the work that I need to do. So that is a super important skill because if you, if you read a page and you just throw your hands up and say, I don't understand, then you're not going to get anywhere. So those are probably my biggest tips I would give.
0: Yeah, I would say that is a great tip for sure. And yeah, I was going to follow up asking a question, but you answered it at the very end. It was like after reading that little bit of whatever and you finally get the gist of it, do you actually go and implement it? And uh, you said, yeah. So yeah, I'm the same way. Like, I don't know. There's like a phrase for that. It's like question driven development or like just in time learning. It's kind of just like you just go and until you get the gist of it and then do it. But you're not like trying to read like 600 pages of Kubernetes docs before you even write like one line of YAML. It's kind of just like, take it as, as you go.
1: Yeah. And I'll say one other thing, if you're just sitting at the screen, if you're sitting and staring at the screen and just trying to, trying to think, you're just trying to brainstorm, like what could be wrong, blah, blah, blah. To me, that's a total failure mode at all times, you know, other than like, maybe I'll allow myself to stay stuck for 30 seconds. But I'm always either reading or trying a command or moving forward in some way. Because if you allow yourself to stay stuck, it's like the longer you stay stuck, the worse your stuckness gets and the harder it is to get unstuck. So if you get stuck, research, go down a list, like try various things, like go and do some more research, then come back and try some more and see if it works now. If you can't think of any more research to do, try some commands. What I would say is like, if you can't think of a smart way to move forward, try to move forward in a stupid way. If you can't think of a good way to move forward, move forward in a bad way and just try something because like rarely do you have to get things perfect on the first try so you can just try something. And if it doesn't work, no big deal. You found something that doesn't work and you can try something else. So the point of that is never allow yourself, never allow yourself to stay stuck.
0: Right. Man, I wish we blocked out more time because, like, I feel like you are a tip machine. Like, there's a lot of really good advice here. I'm not being, like, sarcastic either, right? Like, these are, like, really good tips to, like, really improve on what you're doing. Doesn't matter if you're coding, infrastructure, it's all the same. Mm.
1: Yeah. I have, um, I have this blog post that I wrote that's, like, it's just a huge list of tips. So, a lot of this is not stuff I'm thinking of off the top of my head. It's just these things I've distilled over the, and, you know, hiring these couple people recently has, um, has helped because they'll make mistakes and be like, oh, yeah, people make that mistake sometimes. Add that as a tip, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I'm, I'm full of tips.
0: <laughs> nice. So Jason, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Now, you mentioned that you do have a blog post somewhere. Do you want to go over maybe some other potential places where people can find you like Twitter, GitHub, your personal site? I'll
1: give you just one and that can take you everywhere else you might want to go, which is codewithjason.com.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop that into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. Production Podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.